Welcome to May It Displease the Court, a podcast about how unjust the court system has always been, a problem which may have a lot to do with who the profession elevates to the judiciary. A quick reminder that you can reach out and connect with us on social media. Follow May It Displease the Court on Facebook, at CourtPod on Twitter for updates and our thoughts on news and current events. Our email is displeasethecourt at gmail.com. Write us and let us know what you think about the state of the judiciary. The judiciary at the state and federal level is heavily male, white, and straight. A lot of the discussion around increasing diversity has focused on getting more women and people of color on the bench, with the acknowledgement being that they would bring a different perspective and concerns and that they would focus their legal analysis probably because of their different backgrounds on different issues. And maybe the decisions would also have different results. But enough, enough attention is focused on how a person's professional background shapes their priorities and shapes their, their decisions on the bench. A 2011 study, now not super recent, but it found that 15% of state Supreme Court justices had experience as public defenders, compared to 33% of state Supreme Court justices who had experience as prosecutors. What are the rest? They're civil attorneys. In broad stroke, civil attorneys fight over money. They deal with money issues, and they are considered maybe clean or respectable or prestigious, whereas criminal attorneys, they, we deal with the messy parts of humanity. The jobs don't pay much relative to civil attorneys, so the view kind of as attorneys who practice in this area are by nature less driven by money. They're described as more ideological if they're on the public defender side or political on the prosecution side. These are, you know, the main groups that judges can come from. A balanced bench should be comprised of, you know, the best from each of these groups. Now, look at the Southern District of New York, known as, you know, the most influential federal trial court in the nation. 60% of the court's active judges are former prosecutors. Meanwhile, only two of the court's 24 sitting judges have any public defense experience. True to brand, Trump took a bad situation and made it worse. He appointed over 12 times more judges who had worked exclusively as government advocates than judges with criminal defense or plaintiff side civil rights litigation backgrounds. We're talking 85 to 4. Now, before you fetishize Democrats, how did Obama do? Terrible. Just 14% had experience working as public defenders. Meanwhile, 41% of his nominees had experience working as prosecutors. How's Biden doing? Well, five of his first 11 nominations were former public defenders or attorneys who had previously represented indigent clients. That's an improvement. But there's a long way to go. And every bunch of nominations would need to include a majority of public interest or civil rights attorneys to even claim to actually be trying to rebalance the bench. And that, frankly, I think is unlikely. So what about state courts? That's where the majority of cases are heard and decided. I want to focus on New York. That's where I have my experience. It's supposedly a left-leaning bastion of progressivism and strong civil rights protections. However, scandal-ridden New York Governor Andrew Cuomo has appointed the entire Court of Appeals, the top state court in New York. It has the power to shape New York laws. Governor Cuomo has appointed every current member of the court, establishing a conservative majority that has become increasingly pro-prosecution. They have little regard or concern for the rights of criminal defendants. 
The current court includes two former prosecutors. They happen to be the most conservative members. It doesn't include any former public defenders. And Judge Fahey, once he retires, none of the judges will have had any prior appellate judicial experience. Hmm. Concerning. The effects of a pro-prosecution bench are revealed in the types of cases that the court will even decide. So you're entitled to one direct appeal of your conviction at the appellate court, but you're not entitled to have that decision reviewed by the Court of Appeals. In order to get there, you have to ask the Court of Appeals for permission to be heard. You file what's known as a leave of appeal, meaning you ask the court to take the case, and I just did that last week, actually, in one of my cases. One of the reasons that the defense bar is so upset about the current makeup of the Court of Appeals is because they are taking an increasingly tiny number of cases. They're just not reviewing criminal, uh, criminal cases. The number of criminal appeals accepted by the court is at the lowest point in years. In 2013, for example, the court heard 259 criminal appeals. Last year, that number dropped to 96. So what if you get through? Great, right? No, not great. Even if you get through, those cases have been decided on a very pro-prosecution basis. In 2017, the court sided with the prosecution in 82% of the cases it heard. One judge, Michael Garcia, ruled in favor of the prosecution in 100% of the court's non-unanimous cases. And only two of the court's judges, Rivera and Rowan Wilson, don't regularly vote in lockstep with the prosecution. And I, uh, I can say that you know, my cases have all happened to go to Judge Garcia. So you can imagine how well that's been going for everybody. All right. So what happens when you ask for leave? What happens is you draft your petition, you ask the court to accept your case, you mail it to the chief judge, and then it gets randomly assigned to the judges. You know, I do find it interesting that all of my random cases have gone to Judge Garcia. What are the odds? But I'm not saying, I'm not really saying there's a conspiracy. I'm just kind of like, why? Anyway. In response to the Black Lives Matter protests, Governor Cuomo, he gave a press conference saying, you know, there needs to be accountability and a reckoning. Now, but what did he actually do? He nominated Madeline Singas. She's a career prosecutor and a problematic prosecutor. She's worked at offices that have dodged constitutional and ethical rules by withholding exculpatory evidence, uh, attempting to circumvent the accused's right to remain silent during an interrogation. She has co-authored opinion pieces that have criticized the bail changes. We just did an episode on uh, how good the bail changes have been. Uh, she's also spoken out against the discovery and speedy trial legislative changes. And she has worked in an office that has actively trained the district attorneys on how to evade these newly enacted laws. She has refused to prosecute some police misconduct. She has aggressively fought to withhold information about law enforcement investigations from the public. And she's a tough-on-crime DA who regularly pursues the maximum charges, even against ordinary drug crimes. Cuomo's second nominee, Anthony Canatero, um, was a civil trial a court and administrative law judge. He has absolutely no record of support for the rights of defendants, and he's never represented an indigent defendant. So, you know, not great from the defense bar perspective. More than 40 law professors signed an open letter to the Senate asking them not to rubber stamp these nominees and raising concerns that the bench needs to be more fair 
uh, have a more balanced perspective. Unfortunately, the New York State Senate this week confirmed both nominees. Not great news for those who want increased police accountability. Now, I have to say being a PD personally was it, it forced me to empathize and identify with people that had very different backgrounds from me. And, you know, maybe they were really difficult people who weren't super grateful to talk to me or excited to talk to me and 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 had a lot of hostility towards the system and distrust huge distrust and so these are these are my clients and i have to understand where they come from what what trauma has affected their life how that has affected their life and how poverty all of these different challenges that face indigent clients i've had to dig in and and understand what that is so that I can express um, a full picture of my clients back to the court. So if you don't have that experience of really kind of digging in and figuring out, you know, you know, what is what is happening here? What is happening from a defense perspective? It's it is hard to, you know, to understand, you know, and to empathize, you know, if that isn't the world that you came from. I think it's really important to bring people on the bench who has ha- who have had that experience. You know, who, who are people that regularly try to protect people's rights from or overbearing and arbitrary racist policing system. They understand that the legal system is not just all the time that we have to scrutinize it. We have to hold it. We're a check against governmental tyranny. That's what public defenders really are. And today we have with us Julie Sianca. She is an award-winning criminal defense lawyer. She uh, won the Jeff Jacobs uh, Trial Excellence Award, and she has been a public defender for over 26 years and handling the most difficult criminal cases. And it is a high volume area. So there's, she's always had to juggle you know, a lot of, of cases and, and difficult cases. Julie is running for county court in Monroe County, and full disclosure, Julie and I both worked at the Monroe County Public Defender's Office. I've had the benefit of attending training she's given, of her mentorship, and her example, especially as a trial attorney. Welcome, Julie. Thank you for being on the podcast today. Thank you, Mary. Thank you so much for putting this together and inviting me on. I appreciate it. Well, I really wanted you to talk about you know, why you're running to for, for county court and why, you know, your experience is something that's needed on the bench? That's a question I had to ask myself because I did not come into this process voluntarily. I wasn't as, uh, it was, this was not a childhood dream of mine. This wasn't something I always wanted to do. I fully expected that I would complete my career working in the public defender's office as a defense attorney. It wasn't an ambition to be on the bench. It wasn't until a couple of years ago where some people uh, approached me and suggested to me that that might be an appropriate use of my trial experience to go on the bench. And I had never really thought about it much before. Uh, you know, Mary, that typically working in the public defender's office, people don't perceive public defenders, sometimes even as lawyers. They think that, you know, we're less than, we think that we're bargain basement, you get what you pay for, you know, the, the general kind of disrespect that, that's given towards people who choose to 
advocate in the environment that we advocate in. So I probably had a little bit of a self-esteem issue. And as much as I love my job, it never occurred to me that there would be people who would see the value of the service that we provide and see the value that it would have on the bench. So I had to be talked into that. I work in an environment where it's standard operating, where district attorneys either go straight to the bench or they become law clerks and go to the bench from there. And it's almost an assembly line of, of, you know, build a bear, you know, how to to build a county court judge, how to to build a Supreme Court judge. You start here and we just kind of add on these things to your resume and then bingo, you're a judge. And it's a lot of the attributes that you had referenced earlier. You're male, you're white, you're prosecution oriented. Um, you come from a background that it, it deals with financial, you know, access. And those are all the hallmarks of the um, traits that you will see kind of finding themselves on the bench. Being a woman who works in the public defender's office did not apply to me. So when I started to have these conversations with people, I sat down with some trusted friends and mentors and people that I look up to. And I asked them, what do you think about this? You know me. You have watched me work. You've heard me speak. You know what I am or who I am. And do you think it's a good fit? And I got a thumbs up from the very people that I felt most important. And so that's kind of how it started. It's For me, it's, it's a service. I have been given this great privilege to use my life and service to the Constitution. And the place where the Constitution is the most vulnerable to attack is when it comes to the rights of poor people. It's very easy for middle class, upper middle class, wealthy people to look the other way when the Constitution is being shredded because it's happening to those people. It's happening to black people. It's happening to poor people. It's happening to people with mental health issues. It's happening to people who they don't want to think about or live next to anyways. So what they don't understand is that that's, we're all the same and deprivations to people who don't look like you are ultimately going to affect you as well. We're all one and we don't have the luxury of looking away and saying it's okay if it happens to somebody else. So I've had the privilege of defending the Constitution on behalf of people who otherwise would be victimized by, by prosecutors, by law enforcement. So they have been a great use, I think, of my skills and my talent, and it's been a wonderful service to provide, and I've gotten a great deal of satisfaction out of it, but I've been doing this for 26 years. I've done over 150 trials. I have had numerous cases come back on appeal where appellate courts have found that my argument should have prevailed, and the judge was incorrect in denying my motions or denying my applications. So with this amount of experience, what do you do with that? What further service can I provide? And that's how I started running for judge. There is a culture on the bench that leans heavily towards rubber stamping the actions of law enforcement and prosecutors. That's always the safe route. Judges who get on the bench with the idea that this is going to be an easy paycheck, because all I have to do is what the prosecutor tells me to do. And all the prosecutor is going to do is what law enforcement told them to do or what they told law enforcement to do. That's going to be a really low stress, easy way to make a living. You're not going to get called out in the newspaper. You're not going to get called out on talk radio. It, it, it's just going to be a pleasure. That is a 
that's a crime that somebody would think that that's a way to earn a living, to just go on and rubber stamp what the prosecution wants. And I've seen that too much to say, I can't do anything about that. I have fought against that too long to not take this opportunity to get on the bench and try and change that culture and put it where it belongs, which is the judge is there pre, if somebody is not convicted, if they are pre-conviction, the judge is there to protect that person. They are there to protect their rights. They are not there to protect the community. They are not there to protect the prosecution. They are not there to vouch for law enforcement. They are there to protect the constitution. And that means protecting the rights of the accused. And these are just fundamentals. I don't know how we got so far away from them. They are presumed innocent. Uh, searches by law enforcement have to be proven to be lawful. We don't presume that everything was done correctly. Uh, evidence that was obtained is not necessarily going to be admissible. It's not necessarily obtained correctly. Grand jury indictments are not necessarily based on competent evidence or on proper legal procedure. All of these areas that the, the, the process can fall down, it's the judge's job to intercede and make sure things were done correctly. And when they refuse to do that, that's just as unlawful as the actions that my clients are accused of doing, if not more so. So that's ultimately why I am doing this, because my experience, my belief, my values, my career of protecting the rights of the accused, I believe is exactly 100% the job description of a judge, which is to protect the rights of the accused. In the event that an individual is convicted, if we do have somebody who is in a position where they need to be held accountable for a crime that they committed, my experience, as you put, as you just, you know, you put better than I did, has been in working with the accused and their families and getting to know how did they get where they are? What happened in their life? What led them astray? What, what deficits were there in their upbringing that they didn't have advantages that other people might have had that put them down the wrong path? Do they suffer from mental health issues? Do they have substance abuse issues? All of these things are relevant when deciding ultimately what should punishment be. That's the order part of law and order, right? So we need to look at, at, at the human being. We need to look at the person as a member of our community. What, if anything, can we do to restore them to the community safely and, and help them become better as a result of this error that they've made? Um, certainly, there are very dangerous people. There are some people who should not be returned to the community. But having worked with thousands and thousands of people over the years, I think I'm in a really good position to be able to assess those people from others and to keep an open mind about that and never assume that I know somebody, mostly because my clients still surprise me. Even when I meet them, when I talk to them and I have the opportunity to hear them, I'm still surprised by their insights, by their backgrounds, by what they teach me. And that's something that I can also always bring to the bench is that curiosity about what can I gain from this person much, you know, not just what am I giving to them, but what are they giving to me? And what can we do to try and advance this conversation towards something that resembles justice? So that's kind of a long answer. Thank you. I also think that a, a bench that included more, more uh, defenders and more people who are familiar with, you know, and, and, and sympathetic to, you know, the, our most vulnerable citizens, can push government and can push for more options because as a judge, I would be, 
I would be unsatisfied with my only options being incarceration, probation, parole, very few social programs, you know, drug courts that are questionably effective. I would want more options for rehabilitation, for reintegration. And I would, I think that it would be important that judges are powerful people and that they could push and agitate for, uh, for increased options. And I don't hear any of that. They're not, they're not out there advocating for less prisons or less jails or what do you think? I think that it must be very frustrating. And I do think about this. I think about if I'm successful and I am confronted with a case where there's a mandatory minimum, where there are no options, you know, the legislature has set parameters and sentencing on many, many different offenses. And I have a position where I absolutely have no option but to send somebody to prison. It must be difficult. I don't know. I know that in the past we had judges who did seek out and create drug court. I know Judge Schwartz was very instrumental in getting those programs together. Um, He was a city court judge. I honestly couldn't answer right now the ethics or the procedures of whether or not judges can advocate. Neither can I. So Yeah. (laughs) I don't, I don't know, but I know that Schwartz did, right? That, right? that he was sitting on the bench while he was traveling and putting together the drug court program. So he did have license to do that. I don't know, you know, to what effect judges. Right, even like amongst judges, like even at a judge's meeting, even the conversation oh, yeah. would, you know, could, could, could be broadened to include, you know, the the rights of 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 our clients you know instead of just like right police you know and well restorative justice restorative justice always struck me as is a tremendous idea it's not something that we practice and i just had uh opportunity we're kind of still having zoom conferences with the various town committees and i appeared this past week with one of them and later on one of the members got a hold of me and we had a little conversation. The the memory got hold of me is um, LGBTQ plus um, individual. And he discussed with me a case a couple of years ago where somebody was prosecuted for a hate crime against, I think it was a gay man. And he said, could, it would have been wonderful if there could have been restorative justice because hatred is just not going to go away. You know, whatever made this person so bitter and hateful towards somebody for being gay, you know, that's something you want to remedy. You want to try and get to the bottom of that and try and and see if you can do something to to modify it. So restorative justice is is kind of uh, where you get the, you know, the complainant or the victim together with the defendant and they have a conversation, you know, and they actually try to communicate and mm-hmm. part of the how the case is resolved. I don't think I ever participated in a case that where that was ever an option, but it's certainly something that I've heard about. Of course, you would also need a district attorney's office that was open to that kind of that kind of work too. So, you know, there's a lot of challenges. Right. They offered it. It it it's called Partners in Restorative Initiative. I can't I, I can't remember what the last I was. When I was town court supervisor, I would go to their meetings. They had a very, very small program in East Rochester, I think, where they would 
you know, if you had a harassment, you know, or aggravated harassment or something, then we could get them together and, and do it like that. But in the context of more serious offenses, and I understand that that can be uh, very traumatizing for somebody who's been a victim, you know, for complainants. But I think that there's also, again, there's the opportunity for redemption in there that being able to face the person who wronged me and tell them personally, this is what you did um, would be incredibly brave for somebody who's been traumatized, but could potentially have the effect of getting in that person's brain. This is what you did to another human being. You had to confront it. In other words, there's, there's illegal things and there's wrong things. And when we punish things that are unlawful, that's one thing. But when we kind of call out the wrongness of what we did or the immorality or the unethical thing that we did and invite ourselves to become better, that that might be a way to avoid the unlawful behavior in the future, because you've had the opportunity to kind of look at where, why did you do what you did? Why, you, why did you do that? What were the consequences? And maybe it could be a learning experience, but I recognize that that takes a great deal of courage you know, for people who've been victimized to want to put themselves. Well, it's not for every case. It's no. not for, it certainly wouldn't be for every case, even if it was an option, but it would be, yes. it, but it could be a very important option for some cases. Yeah. Now I want to talk about um, something that's like a fairly common courtroom practice that I think can undermine the fair treatment of clients do, uh, based on financial wealth. For example, the practice of a court taking private attorneys means attorneys that have are not public defenders. They have been paid by their clients first, regardless of who was actually at court first. And, that, and then making the public defender and all of their clients wait until the wealthier defendants get to go first. You know, that's that's a really common practice from from, from judges. And I think I, I the you know, the reasons for it was like, well, their their attorneys are being paid and it costs them more, but it sets uh it sets a message, I think, to everybody and, and to and to, you know, clients who have the public defender that these other people are more important, I am less important, I am going to get less, I you know, I already have less. What do you think? Yeah. There, there is, think about it. There is nothing that enrages people more than getting passed in line. People think about that, right? When you could be standing in line at the grocery store. This happened a lot during COVID because the lines were always strange. You know, you'd be at the checkout and there'd be this big gap because you had to have distancing and people had to get their carts through. And I would watch people as just witless looking people walking around with their carts would scoop in, you know, in between these wide spots and the looks on people's faces, you know, people be like, excuse me, excuse me. You know, people hate to be passed up. It, it is, it's, a, it's like getting cut off in traffic. It's a direct blow to your sense of self and your ego. I think what you just mentioned is definitely one of those things that creates unneeded tension and conflict and, and, Again, negative messaging in the courtroom. It's just that simple. If you're there, you sign up, you get called. Right. right? It's so easy. It's such an it, it, easy it's, thing. It's a, you know, it's not not complicated. And and the attorneys have to learn. And like I learned, I I'm late. I never get there first. 
I'm never signed in first. So I wait. I know I'm here. I'm going to be here a while and I will go tell my client, you know, I apologize. I got here late. You know, I tried to get here whatever time I didn't get here. You're probably going to have a weight on your hands. You know, go have a cigarette, go, you know, give me your phone. I'll text you when we're getting close, you know, something. But I would have that conversation with them. So at least they knew if they were waiting, they were because of me, you know, that it wasn't because of them. It's because their attorney got there late. If I had something or I had a client who told me I need to get in and out, then you make a point. You get there earlier so they can get out and you respect that. So it's just common sense. You just, if I had a client in custody, that's not an issue of them getting out. I, I'll get there last. I know I'm going to get called last. I'll do work while I'm sitting there. But nothing makes the attorneys angrier and certainly nothing can show disrespect to the people who are waiting more than just watching somebody just come sailing in, you know, breeze in and their case gets called and they get to go. So I agree with that. That's one of those many, many ways that we can show um, respect, equal respect to everybody in the courtroom. Right. I think, again, very simple, obvious solution. You know, first come, first served, yeah. you know, unless first serve. <laughs> unless there's some yeah. extraordinary circumstance. I loved when you were answering before um, that you were talking about evidentiary issues, because I, I think that that's where a broader perspective, you know, the defense side perspective could could be really could really change things. The evidence that is suppressed, the evidence that is included. I know, you know, from my own trial experience, I had plenty of cases where I was like, this should not come in. I have the case law. I am right. And, you know, and, and it didn't it didn't matter. You know, that that's the thing about you know, clients always think and, and it's a slam dunk winner, you know, and what they don't understand is like, even if there's a case that says exactly what they want it to say, there's also 15 cases that say the opposite for real, like all the time on every single issue. So it's yeah, which yeah. cases do the, does the court listen to and which rationale do they go with? And, you know, so often it's it is just whatever would benefit the prosecution, what would have. And and they don't put limits on the police, you know, for for the, the types of uh, intrusive actions that they take. And this is really a disservice in, in my mind. And, I'm sorry to interrupt um, to law enforcement. No. And to the people who are accused. So here's an example. And this is probably one of the most kind of egregious examples I've, I've had of this, you know, this policymaking that I see. I have a client who is driving a car and the police officer runs the license plate and the registration is suspended on the car. Client parks the car in a public parking spot, gets out, starts to walk down the street. Completely appropriately, law enforcement goes up, stops him, I see your driver's license, blah, blah, blah. The car shouldn't be being operated on the road because suspended registration. Client doesn't have a driver's license. They find out he's got a warrant. He's going to jail. That's fine. A plus, no problems. They now decide that they want to tow the car. And if they're going to tow the car, that means they get to search it. So they search the car and they do find a gun in it. But here's the issue. There's absolutely no basis to tow the car. 
the car is parked in a public parking spot. It's no longer being operated. The car doesn't need to go to jail. (laughs) My client's going to jail because there's a warrant. The client, the car can stay exactly where it is, but they wanted to search the car. So they searched and they found the gun. And when I get this case, I immediately go to the DA and I'm like, you've got a terrible search issue here. It's a fourth amendment violation. We don't, we're not going to solve problems of crime by violating the constitution. We can't go there. This is not, this is not why we have laws. This is why we have that phrase. We're a nation of laws, not men. I get it. There was a gun in the car. You guys got the gun. That's fine. You know, whether my client possessed it, knew it was there, that's a trial issue. But before we even get there, you know that this search was unlawful. And the prosecutor said, we'll let the judge make that decision. And I'm thinking, no, that's, that's your decision. You have the discretion to decide whether or not a case should be pursued. And what is the message that you're about to send law enforcement? If you indict this case, it means you're bringing in a member of, of Russell Police Department to testify the circumstances under which they found this gun which means you are now disseminating to a bunch of grand jurors that this must in some way be okay to do this. And it's not, you're reinforcing to this law enforcement officer that what he did was okay, because I'm letting you come in and continue this case. And you're letting him go back to talk to his friends and other friends in law enforcement and say, I guess this is okay to do. And it's not. So in this case, the district attorney's office is really abdicating their role to tell law enforcement what is appropriate and what is not appropriate behavior. It's one thing to say, hey, you got the gun. Great. Here's the bad news. We can't prosecute this guy because your search was unlawful, but they didn't do it. They indicted it. So now you have, it's like you have kids, right? It would be like you consistently rewarding your child who does the wrong thing. After a while, the one who's doing the right thing is going to say, why do I work so hard? Right? Mom loves So, you know, this child and all he ever does is mess up. I might as well start messing up too. So that case actually got indicted. We went to a suppression hearing and at the suppression hearing, it was probably like one of the most remarkable, we all know you don't ever ask a question you don't know the answer to, right? You never ask an open-ended question on cross. Never. But it was so, from the police reports, from everything that I had, body-worn camera, everything, there was no way around it. You know, you just established officer- the car didn't have a registry, you know, labs say that is correct. Yes, but it was parked in a public parking spot. Yes, it was. There were no complaints. No, there was no time. There's no, no, there's absolutely no. So can you please tell me what was the legal basis to tow this car? I actually asked him the question and he looked at me and he goes, there wasn't one. Now, at this point, the judge should have said, that's a wrap. Yep. That's a wrap. Right. There was no legal basis. Mr. Thank you very much for your candor, Mr. Officer. Thank you, Leave. And now I'm going to take the DA in my chambers and we're going to have a serious conversation about you wasting time, you wasting resources, and you sending a message to law enforcement that what they did was okay and keep doing it and bring it to me you know, and have me make the decision. So I look like the bad guy, which I'm happy to do because I'm not the bad guy when I'm upholding the constitution, but that's the game that they play. So did that happen? It did not. The judge, I kind of looked at the judge when the officer said that and waited for him to look at me and be like, okay, we're good. And he didn't even react. 
It's almost right. if he did. Did he, did he suppress it? Did he suppress it? He did. But I had okay. to write a memo. I had to write a memo. Um, I had to write a memo. Well, he needed case law. He needed case, he needed law, case law that, that you found. <laughs> yes. He needed case law that when the officer admitted on the record under oath that he had no legal basis to tow the car and therefore to search it, he still needed me to write a memo. This is what I'm talking about. I mean, this is a, just a gross abuse of discretion. And it comes along with this almost like unconscious deference, you know, deference to what's come before must have been done correctly. And that is exactly the opposite of what we do as defense attorneys. We do not assume that what's become was done correctly, was done before has been done correctly. I'm going to put the government through their paces. I'm going to hold their feet to the fire. I'm going to make sure they did it right. If they did it right, no problem. You know, that's that's how you keep the system honest. Systems get corrupt when we stop testing them. You know, you have a complex system here and it needs to be consistently challenged and questioned and encouraged to examine itself and re-examine itself and keep it honest. If we just sit back and be like, oh, I'll just all go to plan, you see what we wind up with. And so that case is just a little example of where I feel as though law enforcement is being given a really mixed message when they're being told on the one hand, do whatever you want. It's fine. You know, we'll just let the jury sort it out or the judge sort it out and then we'll blame it on liberals or you know, bleeding hearts or whatever it is, when really what's going wrong is that the people who are most, who have, who have sworn the most sacred oath to uphold the constitution are using it like toilet paper. Yeah. Well, you know, you were, you, you mentioned something that I, that is interesting to me is the, you kind of mentioned like an implicit, like an implicit bias in favor of police that judges have, but we all have implicit biases for and against things, you know, no matter how hard we work uh, to try to get rid of them. Mm -hmm. I've read some interesting suggestions on how to deal with that. And I wondered what your thoughts are. Their suggestion for dealing with judicial implicit bias would be to collect statistics and, and then look at them. How are cases, how are cases treated? And then with the goal of identifying practices that had a disproportionate impact on say racial minorities or something like that. And then, you know, and then you would review those and then you could say like, mm -hmm. okay, so maybe I don't even intend to do this, but this practice is causing this effect. Would you be open to that kind of data collection and analysis if you were a judge? Absolutely. I, I may be, a weird person here on this, but I love to be proven wrong and be shown where I am making a mistake because that means I can still grow. It means that I'm still flexible. I'm still plastic. I, I can still learn and I can still get better. So the idea of challenging my own biases has always been a part of our job, right? We always have been called to do that because it can be very easy to just go into shock and stop considering, again, as you pointed out, the unique humanity of each one of our clients and their particular backgrounds and their particular you know, life stories. You can just get numb to that. Um, so you need to constantly challenge in what way is this affecting me? And one of the 
I just did a CLE. Actually, I presented a CLE last year with Danielle Ponder on how to be an anti-racist lawyer. And it was really, again, as it always is, it kind of cracks your mind open and makes you start thinking about yourself. And one of the stories that I shared during that, that trainer was a case I had years ago where my client was allegedly in possession of cocaine with the intent to sell it. So it was a search warrant that was conducted in an apartment. When they got there, um, the undercovers found uh, some cocaine. They found some drug paraphernalia, postal scale, little baggies, things like that, consistent with packaging at the location. And my client was charged with possessing with the intent to sell it. My client was Hispanic. And I remember talking to the DA and I was making the argument, how can you prove that they knew that the cocaine was there? And that they had the intent to sell it. Now, those are the requirements, required elements. And she said, Julie, the postal scale was right out there on the table. What else do you think it's for? And I, or what else would they think it was for? And I thought to myself, I wouldn't know what it was for. Right? Yeah. It's a postal scale. I don't know. They, they, I they weigh, weigh my their, letters. You know, their flower. <laughs> right. Yeah, right. They, they weigh, weigh their, their flowers, letters. Sure. They weigh their flower. You know, it's in the kit. Yeah, sure. I don't know. Um, but the assumption was, is that my client knew because he's Hispanic. Right. And it hit me that I was buying in mm -hmm. that too. Mm -hmm. Right. Because I was thinking more in terms of, you know, the cocaine was hidden. How do we know it was there? How is it? But the postal scale, well, everybody knows what the postal scale is for. And there's absolutely no reason to believe my client knew what the postal scale was for. Um, I tried that case. He was acquitted because I argued that to the jury. Like, what about my client makes you think that he would know what these things were for, even what it was? You know, I had a gun case where a gun was on a couch when they executed the warrant and my client was in the room and everybody's like, why are you trying this case? He's obviously guilty. I'm like, because if I walked into a house and I saw a gun on a couch, I don't think that means I'm possessing it. I'm terrified of guns. I'm not going to pick up that gun. I'm not going to exercise dominion and control over it. I don't even know if it's a real gun because I'm not trained. And during the course of that trial, everybody's like, you're nuts. He's going to get convicted. Well, he was black, right? So I argued to the jurors, what about my client makes you think because he was in the same room as a gun that he was in possession of it? What would make you think that? Would you? No. Why do you think you? And they acquitted him because we need to stop thinking in what way is our perception of this individual a, a little, no matter how a feather on the scales of justice. And we can't convince jurors to not see it that way until we don't right. see it that way. So that's, again, the challenge. It's a work that we have to do because we have to help jurors. We have to help prosecutors. We have to help judges take those preconceived notions or biases they may not even be thinking about and set them aside and judge the cases on the evidence, on the facts, and not on the color of our client's skin or their, their background but you got to look at it yourself. So yes, having somebody monitor to make sure that I'm doing that work and that I am not improperly punishing people or making decisions about them based on those factors, I think is, is critical. Yeah. I think, I think that's a great example, you know, and, and, and you do have to, you know, as an attorney, like, cause you could say to yourself, you, you could buy into the other side's argument, be like, yep, that case is a dog. We should plea. You're going to be convicted. Yes. You know, you definitely should take yes. a deal on this, yes. you know, and that's my assessment of the evidence. You know, you're thinking, right? When, when, when you're buying into the yes. same right. 
preconceived notion, you know, prejudice against your own client. Absolutely. Yeah. So I think that is, that is, it's really important. Uh, It's really important self critique um, to be, to be open to that. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And when you're on the other side and you're always pushing that, that argument, you just don't have to do that. You don't have to step into somebody else's shoes. You don't have to try to convince a jury of people from the suburbs to care about your client who lives completely on the other side of town. And there's something about having to go through that because you want, you know, we're competitive people. You want to win. You want to win. You want you want to do the best that you can. You want to make yeah. the best argument that you can. You really feel for this client, and you want them, you know, to be heard. And you know how hard that is, you know. And if you never have to challenge yourself that way because your job doesn't require you to do it, then I think you. Oh, actually, not only does your job not require you to do it, it kind of it can kind of uh, work against you, and you have to sh- and you sh- actively shut that out. You know what I mean? I think that they actively try to ignore those pleas, uh, you know, the humanization. They try to ignore that information. Exactly. Right. Prejudice and bias are um, tools for the prosecutor in a jury trial, especially because if they can start appealing to jurors' fear of my client, if they look different than they do, again, and that idea that would I want to live next door to this person? Would I want to have dinner with? It's like, those aren't really the issues. You know, this, you may hear things about this individual that you're not going to like, you know, he may have done something unlawful, but not the thing he's accused of. You know, I may be asking jurors to split those legal hairs, you know, they'll be able to prove this totally did this. I'm not here to argue about that, but the prosecutors become greedy. I had a case recently that was overindicted as a Rob one because the allegation my client caused physical injury and the physical injury was apparently a reddish mark on a man's arm. And there was body worn camera where when the police first responded to the scene, they um, had asked the guy several times, are you hurt? Are you hurt? Are you hurt? No, 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 no. He's wearing a white chef's apron, no blood on it. Nothing to indicate he'd been harmed. He actually stabbed my client. That's a different aspect of the case. Um, And about an hour later, the police go back and body-worn camera, and now you see the same man standing there, and he's laughing, pointing at his arm and saying, going like this, going, you want me to go to the hospital for this? Because there's nothing. There's like like almost like an abrasion on his arm. And the police officer says on the body-worn camera, well, yeah, it's better for the charges. So they're creating a crime that didn't occur. They're creating an injury that's not there because they want to take a Rob third, which is a nonviolent felony and turn it into a Rob one. So the guy is still kind of all body worn cameras kind of mystified. Like he's laughing. He owns a restaurant. He wants to just open up his restaurant and go back to work. And you hear the cop say it again. He goes, no, it'd really be better. We need him to go down to the hospital and ID this guy. And um, it's better for the charges. You're like, ID this guy. He never did, but this is on body-worn camera. I mean, this was all recorded. So when it got indicted and I got the discovery, you know, post-indictment, now we at least get it before indictment, uh, I sat down with the DA. I'm like, this isn't physical injury. He's laughing, saying, what? Are you kidding me? And she goes, well, no, he testified at grand jury. I'm like, I don't care what he testified at grand jury. He didn't have an injury. Well, it didn't matter. Um, 
they offered an attempted rob one with like 12 years and it's like but it's not i can't there's no injury i ethically cannot advise my client to plead a causing an injury that he didn't cause because there isn't one and the judge looked at me and laughed and said good luck with the jury they're going to hate your client because my client was a drug addicted black man who resisted arrest on camera. So we have him acting violently and aggressively with law enforcement that I couldn't keep out. And the individual that he was trying to rob was a wonderfully charming older woman who was opening up her restaurant, minding her own business. It was a terrible fact pattern. It was a rob third all day. I would have pled to it, but they had to indict the rob one, even though it wasn't there. And then the judge laughed and said, good luck with the jury on that. They're going to hate your client. That's not a judge's job to throw you to the wolves, hope the jurors are racist, will hate your client and convict him, not because he's guilty, but because they hate him. He was acquitted. But these are the types of things where judges are just not doing the proper thing to make sure that the right to a fair trial is protected. The grand jury minute should have been dismissed on the Rob one for lack of physical injury, but it wasn't. So again, big waste of, of resources. Well, you know, I want to I want to thank you, Julie, for for coming uh, on today and and really kind of expressing for everybody in in great detail and with with real like personal experience, you know, what the benefits are of you know bringing the defense perspective onto the bench, and I think that it's going to be huge for the community. You know, there's a straight line that leads from the judge-created doctrine of qualified immunity, judicial rubber stamping of, prosec and pro of uh, prosecutors and police to, you know, the work that they do, and George Floyd's neck. There is, a, there is a direct line there. There's responsibility at each of those points. And, you know, you, you said it before, you know, I mean, when you, when you push back and you hold the government ac accountable and you make them follow the Constitution, it protects everybody, but there is there you face heat from that. You're you know you face pushback. There there will be cries of from that from that other side. You know that 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 you know you that you just really want to let everybody out and that you're really not for the Constitution. But that's what we've that's what we've done the whole time. We're we're on the on the other side screaming about the Constitution. The Constitution says this. You know, the propaganda pushes that that really the police and the and the prosecutors and, and yeah. the judges are all about the constitution but really that's what that's what the defense does you know they they are they're the standard keepers if the judiciary is bold and brave enough to to hold everybody to that standard they you know that's what that's the job of the defense attorney to say no this is the standard that should be met, you know, and, and we all know when we have cases that that they have proven there's that's all you can do is say, well, did you prove your case? OK, you know, I mean, there's nothing more that can be done. Right. Then you go to then you go to the second part of the representation, which is to bring out the circumstances, the background and what how do we balance the, you know, the dignity of this person with the needs of the community to protect perhaps be protected from that person. That's, again, so we have law, which is the pre-conviction area of, of um, criminal procedure. This is where judges should be protecting the rights of the accused. And then you have the order part, which comes subsequent to a conviction. The order part should not come pre 
conviction. That's not when we start imposing order because that person's presumed innocent. Post-conviction, then we go to the next phase, which is what is the appropriate remedy for this behavior with regard to this individual as well as the protection of the community. Absolutely. And yes. And also, you know, what, you know, and what happened to the complainant too. And, you know, when you are used to caring about that, you know, you have the ability to, to look at all of those sides, you know, and, and I, I think that when you're constantly trying to close off that human empathy impulse, uh, I think it's very difficult, you know, in that sentencing phase to do anything other than uh, the appearance of caring. You know, it, it, it takes a lot of emotional energy to care about something. And, and I don't, it's a, it's the most nerve wracking part, I think, you know, as an attorney is to, is, 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 am I going to encounter a judge that is, that, that is up for the energy of caring about what I'm saying? And I would have to say almost never, almost never do I feel that they have come to court that day prepared for that. And I think that that's a, that's a real shame and that they're not doing a huge part of their job. They're just absolutely not doing it by being so emotionally closed off to the people that are around them. So the voters in Monroe County, they have the opportunity to make their voices heard on primary day, which is June 22nd. And I think that that's, uh, you know, they have a great opportunity. So to get to know who is is running and get out there and vote for that. Thank you again for listening to this special episode. You can always like and subscribe to hear more. And uh, you can follow, you know, Julie Sianca on social media and see how her campaign goes. All right. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Mary.